Good morning. I would add two things uh, to these announcements. Tomorrow night, we're doing this every month. We take this the Monday night, which is what, what Monday is it? The first Monday of the month to pray for souls. We've been doing that. We're going to continue to do it. So I would ask if you could come out and join us praying for your loved ones, your friends. Maybe it's just at work. You don't know. But uh, we're seeing the Lord moving, bringing people to know him. We want to be praying and asking the Lord to do that. So tomorrow night, once a month, first Monday of the month, we pray for an hour from 630 to 730 here. And then also we have our prayer bowl and our trumpet bowl here. If you have prayer requests, put them in there, please. We will pray for you at least once a month, individually, personally, for that prayer. If you have answers, put them in our trumpet bowl as a praise to the Lord for answering our prayers. So would you stand? We're in Mark chapter. We're going we're to jump ahead in our study in Mark to Mark chapter 11 and look at this whole thing called the triumphant entry of Jesus. We celebrate it today. It's Palm Sunday. So I thought we'd just jump forward in Mark 11. I'm going to read the first 11 verses, and then we're going to do a little responsive reading from Psalm 118, which is prophetic also of this same event. So in Mark chapter 11, Verse 1, now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save now in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. And then in Psalm 118, I'll read the first in odd verses. If you would join together in reading the second and even verses. And then the last one we're going to do together. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Save now, I pray. O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Then he ends with the same verse as the first one. Say it all together. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And Lord, we are so thankful that your mercy endures forever. That you are merciful, gracious, kind beyond all measure. And we love you. We bow before your word. We bow before you. We ask, Lord, to give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church this morning, to us this morning. We're thankful for this event but something that you had planned. And Lord, we get to read about it, we get to study it, we get to rejoice in it. 
that you are so good, so gracious, so merciful that you would send your son, our king, to come and die on a cross for us and rise again and seat at the right hand and coming again as king of kings and lord of lords. We don't, Lord, we want to grasp that a little bit deeper this morning. I pray your blessing over the things that I've prepared. Break them fresh. Feed us, Lord. We are hungry. And we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So I ask, Lord, again, give us ears to hear, to receive the engrafted word which is able to save our souls. Bless this time now in Jesus' name. Everyone said amen. You can be seated. So in this story, the triumphant entry of Jesus, they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their clothes on it. He sat on it, verse 8, and many spread their clothes on the road. And others cut down leafy branches from the trees, that's why they call it Palm Sunday, and spread them on the road. Now, Matthew tells us concerning this event, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, this is in Zechariah 9.9, which we'll read later, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is one of the, for me, this is one of the most fascinating prophecy passages that God's preserved for us in his word. I, be, I want to begin by putting the prophetic word in what I call its staggering perspective. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we read this. And so, we have, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. The morning star pointing to Jesus. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. We don't get to make this thing up. We don't get to decide what. God tells us very clearly. He's given us this light that we need to look at, which we'll do this morning. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved along, as they were prompted, as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. We know that the Word of God itself is inspired by Him. He's given it to us. This is His revelation to us. But this prophetic word is staggering. When you begin looking at the, the, uh, prop, the compound probabilities of these things coming true, which is what I want to talk about, begin. You see, talk is cheap. Anyone can make predictions. Having them come true is a whole different realm. The more facts that are stated, the greater the details given, the less likely that those are going to be fulfilled exponentially as you add detail. Micah pre predicted the exact day of Jesus' birth 700 years before it ever actually happened. He predicted the exact city, excuse me, where he would be born, Bethlehem. Daniel predicted 530 years before it happened the exact day that, the Jesus, that Jesus would be publicly revealed to Israel as their Messiah. David, in Psalm 22, and others, predicted the precise manner of death that Jesus would experience, listen, a thousand years yet still in the future, a manner of death that was, when he prophesied, was unknown and would not be known for hundreds of years. Alfred Edersheim, in his, who's a Jewish convert to Christianity, biblical scholar, best known for his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, he counted up the prophecies and he came up with, listen, 456 prophecies about Jesus fulfilled 
by him personally. Detailed prophecies, many of them. So I want to just reiterate what many have written. I got this from empowerglobal.com. If one were to conceive 50 specific prophecies about a person in the future whom one would never meet, just what's the likelihood that, that this person will fulfill all 50 of those predictions? How much less this likelihood be if 25 of those predictions were about what other people would actually do to him and were completely beyond his control? For example, how does someone arrange to be born in a specific family? How does one arrange to be born in a specific city in which their parents don't actually live? How does one arrange their own death? And specifically by crucifixion with two others and then arrange to have their executioners gamble for his clothing. You with me? I find this really fun. How does one arrange to be betrayed in advance? How does one arrange to have the executioners carry out the regular practice of breaking the legs of the two victims on either side, but not his own? How does anyone escape from a grave and appear to people after having been killed? Indeed, it may be possible for someone to fake one or two of the messianic prophecies, but it would be impossible for any one person to arrange and fulfill all these prophecies. In a very carefully conducted study to determine the chance factor of one man fulfilling a set number of these prophecies, 12 different classes representing 600 students did through much discussion come to a final unanimous agreement on these prophecies among even the most skeptical of students. And then the professor took and made them even more conservative on certain prophecies. So these students, with a very, very conservative baseline, found the compound probability of Jesus fulfilling just eight, just eight of these prophecies to be 10 to the, one in 10 to the 17th power. That's one with 17 zeros, 10 with 17 zeros. Now, if you were to take 10 tickets and mark one of them and put them in a hat, and then hold the hat up, and someone's going to pick it out without being able to see, the chance factor of them picking out the marked ticket is 1 in 10. 10 to the 17th, now, I want to stop a minute, because I've heard this many times, and so you might have heard this many times. I'm telling you, it's just as fascinating this morning as it is as I was studying it during this week, and to, to think back. It's incredible what God has given to us in the prophetic word. We have no reason to doubt who is our Messiah and what God has planned through him for us. So 10 to the 17th power would be the equivalent to filling the state of Texas two feet deep in, in silver dollars, mark one of those silver dollars, throw it out of the airplane into Texas, get all the bulldozers to mix them all up, and then you take someone up in a helicopter, you blindfold him, and you, he parachutes out down into those silver dollars in the state of Texas. The chance factor of him actually 
blindfolded, going and picking that one mark, is the same possibility, compound probability, of Jesus fulfilling just eight of the prophecies. Your king is coming. That's what he's saying. So let's up the number of prophecies from 8 to 48. The extremely conservative criteria of them being fulfilled by one person is the absolute ridiculous number of 10 to the 157th power. That's 10 with 157 zeros. So let me give you an illustration of that. A professor gives this illustration of this number using electrons. Electrons are very small objects. They're smaller than atoms, A-T-O-M-S. <laughs> it would take 2.5 times 10 to the 15th power of them laid, aside, laid side by side, listen, to make up one inch length of electrons. That's 10 to the, 2 times 10 to the 15th. We're talking 10 to the 157th. So check this out. Even if we counted 250 of these electrons each minute and counted day and night of these electrons, this one inch, it would take 19 million years to count them if you just continue. Are you staggered? Your king is coming. Your king is coming. So, blindfold someone, dump them into these electrons. It's staggering what God has given to us in the prophetic word. And that's just 48, not 456. So, once you get past these, this chance factor, even 10 to the 50th power, the probabilities are so small it would be impossible to, to even believe that it would ever come to, true, come to pass. So the conclusion is any man who rejects Christ as a son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. Your king is coming. Jesus is a son of God. Jesus came in a planned event, this one being one of many, to declare to you and declare to me, your king is coming. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is lowly sitting on a donkey. So renowned theologian Charles M. Schultz put it this way, and I quote, why the theological implications are staggering. Can I give you another one? Here's something I'll bet you don't know. The Bible contains 3,566,480 letters and 773,893 words. You're just not interested in theology, are you? <laughs> we have the more sure word in prophecy. It's incredible. So they went before them, they cried this. You see, this is called the triumphant entry of Jesus. We celebrate this Palm Sunday. Now, to a Roman, this would look ridiculous, this triumphant entry, because they're wanting the pomp and the grandeur of a Roman king returning from victory with the spoils and captives of war. Such is not the king that came the first time. 
God wanted us to know that we might make no mistake about it. Jesus is the promised coming king. He is the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings. Nathaniel understood it when Jesus called him. Pilate wrote it when he crucified him. And let me tell you, we all believe will accompany him when he returns in glory. We will accompany him in reigning and ruling in, on this earth for a thousand years as priests and kings to him. That's as sure as these other prophecies that God's given to us. God keeps his promises. And what he's given to us, and we're going to celebrate next week the greatest event that ever happened, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We're going to celebrate. But I'm saying we're celebrating now. And what God had for Israel could have been celebrated then, beginning with his ride in, and they missed it. They missed it. God wants you to know that you might make no mistake about it. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. We bet our life on it, and God gave his life for it. So if an outline helps you, the king prepared, the king presented, and the king predicted. When they drew near Jerusalem, they came near to Bethany. Jesus and the disciples are going to Jerusalem for the Passover. The whole time of this whole week, Jesus never spent the night in Jerusalem. He was, about a, he was less than a Sabbath day's journey, so it's kind of like you get your hotel in SeaTac, and then you go into Seattle for the meetings. That's what was going on. He's with his disciples. There's a plot that's been festering to kill Lazarus, whom Jesus rose from the dead. That's where they're staying, probably. So due to this coming passion, Passover celebration, G Jerusalem is busting at the seams with people. There's a lot of tension in the air because of these, the, the zealots. He sends his two disciples, probably Peter and John, to prepare, get this thing ready. He sent them going to the village opposite you. And as soon as you have entered it, you will find a cult. Now, can you, wouldn't you have loved to have been if it's John and Peter? He said, this is what's going to happen when you go. And, you know, it's the same thing with our lives. God knows what's going to be happening in your life. He knows what's going to be happening. He says, hey, you go. I'll take care of everything. You just trust me. I'll take care of it. I'm going before you. I'm going to come behind you. I had you behind you for it, and you've taken, put, laid his hand upon you. That's the Lord we serve. That's the God who knows. And Jesus knew these things. He sends the disciples in. This is what you're going to encounter. So it's interesting to me. It says the Lord has need. That seems totally contradictory to me. The Lord has need of it, the donkey. And so they go. And this is also another truth just to take to heart this morning. God is wanting to partner with us to make a difference in this world. He partners with us in our own salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and do what pleases him. So this thing called salvation is a relationship in which we're in partnership with God and working it out. When we pray, we are partnering with God to fulfill his will, to be directed by his Holy Spirit, to see his power working in our lives when we pray. Tomorrow we're going to pray for souls. God hears that. God partners. He has, he's the one that set the thing up. You come and you pray. And you leave it to me. I'll take care of it. In raising our families, God wants to partner moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, great grandmas. He wants to partner with us in discipling our kids for the sake of his kingdom. It's parents who are first responsible 
You, you are the ones that God has given these ch precious children to. And you might say, well, I have no idea what I'm doing. Welcome to the club. <laughs> As you give yourself in your relationship with God and in your marriage, that begins to be the reflection to your children, and you're going to raise them up. And God's saying, I'm with you in it. I'll be there with you. I will help you. You who are single parents, God knows your needs. He will help you, but you must keep your relationship with him center stage. Love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and then you teach your children the same. Live it and love them to Christ. In stewarding the material blessings that God's placed in your life. God said, I want to partner with those things. You give them to me, and then let's go. We'll find out. What we, you'll see what I can do with them. And God's economy is a little different than ours. His is, you give and you'll receive. You can't outgive the Lord in that sense. Now, that's not saying, well, if you give $100, God's going to give you $200. Perish the thought. But you give as God has called you to give it and see if God will open the windows of heaven and pour out so great a blessing. You can't contain it. What does that mean? The windows of heaven. Not of gold and so, but of heaven. The blessings that come in your relationship with God and then that manifested out, that being reflected out in your life just through your desire to be stewarding your life and your material things in glory to God. Reaching the world for Christ. It's a partnership. How are they going to hear unless a preacher is sent? So we go, we, the beautiful feet, we are partnering with God. So we never go alone. You see, when you're sharing, even as Garrett was talking about those cards, when you're giving that to someone, when you're talking to someone, it's the Holy Spirit who convicts, who draws, who's doing those things. And our job is just give them the message. Give them the card. And God say, and then just watch what I can do. And God likes to blow our mind. So he says, he will send it here. In other words, he will immediately send it back. You see, he's borrowing the donkey just like he borrowed the tomb for three days. And I don't know if uh, that rich guy knew about that or not, but. <laughs> and then they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside. They loosed it. So here's Jesus deliberately preparing for this triumphal entry. Now, before this, he did not allow public proclamation of that. He kept his messiahship veiled especially in hostile uh, Galilee. He forbid the noising about of his wonderful works. We've seen those. Because it's, it's not time yet. He commanded his disciples not to talk about the Mount of Transfiguration. It's not time yet. Again and again, he would escape the crowds. He'd slip through them. Now, he did speak of his hour as far as the crucifixion. My hour has not yet come. But right now, what he's talking about is this event. He's preparing for it to proclaim publicly for the first time. He is Messiah. He is the king. Now, in less than a week, his disciples would also be preparing for the Passover. A Passover like no other Passover they'd ever been at. When he, the Passover lamb, is getting ready to lay his life down. And he sent them ahead to prepare the room, prepare those things. This is a different preparation. He's deliberately preparing. So why now? Because the king is being presented. They bought the colt, brought the colt, 
put their clothes on it, went before, and those followed, cried out, saying, Hosanna, which saved now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Verse 10, blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. These guys who are doing this have something on their mind. And I'll tell you what it is. The king has come. They knew what they were doing. They're, so, they're praising Psalm 118. So Zechariah was a much-discussed prophecy in those days, still is and should be. In Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, and then he is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the full of donkey. Now they're thinking salvation is we're going to overthrow Rome. <laughs> they got a whole idea about a king coming. Here's Jesus on a donkey. What does that mean? He's coming in peace. Not to make war. Psalm 118 was also well known, referring to the Messiah. And so as we did the, the response of reading, this is the day the Lord has made. What day? This day. The day he's riding into Jerusalem. Now we sing, this is the day, this is the day. How many know it? That the Lord has made, we will rejoice. Psalm 118 is saying, this is the day. The Lord has made this prophetic hour, this prophetic event is of the Lord. I'm not saying we shouldn't sing that song. I'm, I, you want to finish it? You feel like you've left it? Yeah. <laughs> when Jesus came riding in, they knew exactly what they were doing. In Luke chapter 19, this clears it up. If you think there's any question... The Pharisees themselves will tell you that's what they, he knew, they knew it, that that's what they were doing. And so in Luke 19, some of the Pharisees called him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples. What they're saying is blasphemous. You're not the king. You're not the Messiah. You're not the Zechariah 9-9 fulfillment. Notice what, but he answered them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. In other words, this thing is going to happen, and people are going to know it happened. The Jews were exactly right. Their Messiah would be their king. That's what they were recognizing. Where they were mistaken is thinking that the king would be like Caesar. A whole different realm. What kind of king? He is the king riding on a donkey. He's the king of peace. A king of great humility, lowly and riding on a donkey. No great pomp and pageantry, no royal chariots, no trumpets. He is the king of great power and patience. He has no great invisible armed forces or legions of soldiers. The crowds were spreading their garments. They're not putting on their armor. The Roman soldiers probably chuckled at the sight. His force were not legions of intimidating soldiers. In fact, the center group was a meager group of 12 nobodies. Acts, uneducated fishermen, some of them. He conquered, listen, he conquered not by threats, not by intimidation, not by fear. He conquered by love. 
love so indescribable, I can hardly think that God so loved me that he gave his only begotten son, the king of the universe, to come and die on a cross. He is a king with tears in his eyes, the king of compassion. In Luke, we talk, now as he drew near, same event, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. The Bible says that judgment is God's strange work. It's not like he gets his jollies out of judgment. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he knew it was coming. In just a few days, Jesus will be making his way to the Gol Golgotha with the cross on his back. And as he's doing that, as he draw near, he wept. But then as he did in Luke chapter 23, a great multitude of the people followed him and women who mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which you will say, Blessed are the barren, the wombs that never bore, and the breasts which never nursed. He knows what's coming. King with tears in his eyes. He's the king who will be crowned king of kings and lord of lords when he returns. So a question must stop. Have you given your allegiance to the king? Have you received peace from the king? The compassion of the king for you? This is the king who's coming again. Second time in judgment. So Jesus preparing for this presentation. It was predicted in Daniel chapter 9. In order to understand why now. You have to understand this prophecy. Alexander McLaren said, quote, he was a king who dressed himself in the mirror of prophecy. He was a king who dressed himself in the mirror of prophecy, Jesus. This deliberate, calculated, intentional plan, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was a king of unequaled and unparalleled prophetic impact, significance. He was a king the whole Bible predicts and prophesied over and Daniel, in this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, he knows the captivity is almost up, 70 years. Jeremiah had promised that. So when you get to Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, in the first year of his reign, that's Darius, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, which is Jeremiah chapter 25, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ash. So God sends Gabriel, and he answers this far beyond Daniel's wildest mind. Okay, what's, what's going to happen tomorrow? Seven years are coming up. What's going to happen? What, what? And Gabriel gives him this prophecy that's absolutely incredible. The scope of it is in Daniel 9, 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Seventy sevens, seventy times seven years, 490 years. And it's specifically regarding the Jews and Jerusalem. Six things we could say, well, six things we could argue are, of three of them were already accomplished in his first coming. Daniel 9, 24b, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, 
to make reconciliation for iniquity. This was going to happen, the prophecy. The second three have yet to be fulfilled. We can argue that. In his second coming, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Have we seen that? To seal up vision and prophecy. Have we seen that? To anoint the most holy. We're going to see him. Now, he gives the first 69 of 70 weeks. Now, therefore, know and therefore understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem to until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks, seven sevens, and 62 sevens. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome time. So when did the command go forth to restore and build Jerusalem? Not the temple, that's different. Jerusalem. The city. In his book, The Coming Prince, again, another classic, on March 5th, 445 B.C., King Artaxerxes gave to Nehemiah this command. There were, no, there were other commands concerning the temple, but this is not that. This is concerning the city in Nehemiah chapter 2. So 69, doing the math, times the lunar calendar, 360 days, is 173,880 days. So from from the day that command went out, which was March 5th, 445 B.C., 173,880 days will transpire. And on that day, this is the day the Lord has made. On that day, the Messiah would be revealed. What was that day? Yeah. <laughs> it's this day that we're looking at. That's why the stones would cry out. That's why this whole thing that Jesus waited to reveal. And on that day, he said, it's time. Now, verse 26 gives us the gap between the first 69 and the last 70th week. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. That is an execution, a capital punishment, a capital death, cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood and... until the end of the war, desolations are determined. So sometime between the 69th and 70th week, there'll be an execution. Then the city will be destroyed. When, did the city, when was the city destroyed? It was destroyed in 70 AD. So sometime between the 69th and that event, the Messiah is going to be revealed. Do we have a candidate? We have a candidate. It was Jesus. He would be killed. So the temple was destroyed. The temple was destroyed stone by stone. When they came in, they accidentally set the temple on fire. All the gold in the temple melted. So in order to get to all the gold, they took all the stones apart. And just like Jesus, exactly what Jesus said happened. He weeps over Jerusalem. He said, if you only know the things that belong to your peace, in this your day. Luke chapter 19, you did not know the time of your visitation. They rejected their king when they should have seen him. And Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and holds them accountable. They should have known the day. They should have known the scriptures. Some of the Pharisees called to, the crowd, to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would cry out. And so in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for, for one week. There it is. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offerings, and the wing of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, 
is poured out on the on the desolate. In Matthew, Mark chapter 13, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, let him read, understand. There is coming a horrendous seven years yet. Thankfully, we have been given this salvation by God himself where we are not destined to wrath. We've been given a promise that God will take us out before he judges with his wrath planet earth. I need another amen. amen. I would say if you're here and you don't know Christ, you're missing out. The greatest promise and the greatest hope in all of life is that God wants you to bow before him, his king, and receive from him eternal life. If I could have the worship team come up. As I read these things, I just wrote a sentence. These things should change my perspective on how I'm living life. Let me personalize that for you. These things should change your perspective on how you're living your life. There is a, he's coming again. Are we stewarding with him? Are we partnering with him? Is our, are our lives bowed before him as king of kings and lord of lords? The same king of kings is coming again for war. He's coming again to set up his kingdom. Now, the king's men, which is our Monday night monthly gathering, we saw this video in January. I would guess that maybe you've seen it also, the one I want to play in closing. Our worship team is going to take us right into a song for wor of worship. I would guess many of others have seen it as well. But it seemed good to me, and I had to really, I, didn't want to, I don't want to overdo it. I could watch this every day. And I think you'll think the same if you haven't seen it before. But it seemed good that we closed this message with this video, very famous video, given by a guy named Dr. Lockridge, who was a pastor of a Calvary Baptist church. So I want to play this, and then I'm going to just join you as the worship team takes us out of this video to worship Jesus as our King of kings and Lord of Lords. So when it's over, I, we just, we'll just stand together, and let's worship him, our King. Amen? Let's do it. If you know him, don't try to mislead me. Do you know my king? The Bible says he's a king of the Jews. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings, and he is a lord of lords. Now that's my king. Well, no barriers can to him from pouring out his blessing. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoulder supply. Well, he's enduringly strong. He's eternally steadfast. 
He's immortally graceful. He's impurely powerful. And he's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's preeminent. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's a fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? Do you know my king? Well, my king is a king of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a gateway of glory. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Do you know him? Well, he's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you, the heavens of heaven cannot contain him, let alone a man explaining him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him. But they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. He always has been. And he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor. And he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You can't even keep him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king. Yay! Do you know him? He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of Lords. That's my king. Yeah.